Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. I am so happy that I get to hang out with Dr. Ellen Davis again this week. One week is simply not enough time. Aside from being one of my all-time favorite Old Testament scholars, Dr. Davis is the Amos Reagan Kearns Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke University. She has written several amazing books, and I will add links to those books in the episode notes. And she is consistently getting involved in amazing projects with international groups and artists. When I was a green PhD student trying to feel my way into an appropriate thesis topic, Dr. Davis allowed me to zoom into one of her classes on space and place, a class that ultimately shone a light on what I now love thinking about. If you joined us last week, you heard us talk about the emotions in the Psalms. This week, we get to talk about something that I try to bring up in classes regarding an emotion or a characteristic of God. Sometimes we think of God as being stoic or distant or angry, but in her book, Getting Involved with God, Dr. Davis talks about God's vulnerability. How do you react when you think of God's vulnerability? If you are like some of my students, you will immediately push back against that idea because God has to remain strong, immovable, and anything but weak and vulnerable. But what does it really mean for the divine to be vulnerable? First of all, I think that it's helpful to remember that a lot of the claims that we attach to God omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all of the omni words, omnis is a Latin word. It doesn't come from the Bible. Those are theological claims that the church is making that I think have a measure of truth in them, but they also stand at some distance from the way the Bible represents reality. Mm. And I think one has to be careful of that distance. And I take my stand on the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to remember with respect to this question of vulnerability, that while the Bible does speak of God as being judge, and we don't think of a judge as being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and speak of God, the Bible speaks of God as being a fortress, you know, Mm -hmm a refuge, but the most developed metaphors in the Bible for God's relationship to Israel, particularly, are parent and spouse, and most often father, although sometimes nursing mother, and spouse, generally husband. Well, when you think about what those relations are like, then you know those are relations of vulnerability. Hmm. That once you don't 
ideally, one does not have a child out of one's neediness. One has a child out of one's desire to express love more fully. But once that child exists, then any parent needs the child. And so God says in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more I called to him, the more he went away from me. And then goes on to speak to this wayward child about I love my guts. This is intestines, okay? This is God speaking. My guts churn for him. Hmm. That's a position of divine vulnerability. I don't see that there's another way of construing that. Again, in Isaiah, um, God speaks of having carved Israel on the palms of God's hands. It's, you know, they're a tattoo or they are carved into the flesh. That hurts going in and it's an indelible marking. You are always before me. The mother may forget, and I say, the mother may forget her sucking child, but I won't forget you. We're talking about the physical pain of not having the child at the breast to relieve the mother and to make that contact of love between parent and child. This is how God feels about Israel. Well, only by a willful act of neglect of the language of Scripture can you determine, as far as I can see, that God is not willing to be represented as vulnerable in this relationship. And so I argue that covenant in the Bible, and right now I'm translating the Psalms and I translate the word that characterizes covenant relationship, chesed, traditionally loving kindness, steadfast love. I translate it covenant love. Mm-hmm. Well, that's love that is binding, demanding, and costly on all sides, the human side as well as the divine side. And again, I think if you don't take the notion of divine vulnerability seriously, it's very hard to make any sense of Jesus on the cross and God sending God's only begotten son into the world. Well, anyone who's read the Bible knows that whenever an only son is named, there's trouble ahead, life-threatening trouble and often death. So, I don't know how you can make sense of Jesus on the cross and of Jesus as God if you don't see a notion of divine vulnerability. Hmm. That's really beautiful. (laughs) There is a different, I don't know, emotion maybe might be the right word. A student of mine just today in class asked me to ask you this question. So I'm doing this on behalf of the student who wants to understand a little bit more about what it means when God regrets. 
So in Genesis 6, when the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, or I regret that I made Saul king, that type of regretting, what is that getting at for what God is feeling or processing? I would need to look at, one would need to look at different passages and the exact wording that is used there, because slightly different things are being said in different places. Yeah. But when God, I think this is in Genesis 6, God looks at the fact that the whole earth is filled with violence and it grieves God to the heart. Hmm. Okay. Well, as we've talked about the word heart at some length here. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me pretty obvious that God is disappointed. This was not God's dream again i don't think that very many of the narratives of the hebrew bible give a lot of comfort to the notion of an omniscient god if that means that god had everything wired in advance yeah Yeah. i think if god is grieved to the heart this is not what god intended or foresaw which is to say God enters into a real relationship with humankind. It's not just kind of divine puppetry here. Mm-hmm. People are going to do things, and then God, the creator, the parent, the lover, is going to figure out how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. The word that is often translated regret of God, also of humankind, is the Hebrew verb nicham in the nifal with the preposition al. Mm -hmm. Nicham in that particular conjugation with that preposition, I think every place it occurs, if you translate it, changed one's mind concerning, changed one's attitude, I said before that mine doesn't translate too well into Hebrew. <laughs> right. Took a different attitude concerning, <laughs> then you see what's happening. And so I there are moments, Job says, I change my mind concerning a father effo, dust and ashes. This is after God has appeared. I don't think Job repents on dust and ashes. I think with dignity, Job says, I see things differently. And dust and ashes is everywhere else in the Bible a metaphor for the human condition vis-a-vis God. Mm. Likewise, I think that when God regrets, God is now taking a different attitude. And you see this repeatedly in Scripture, that God takes an initiative, toward humankind to establish a new kind of relationship. Very frequently, humans screw it up, mm-hmm. and then God tries again. Mm-hmm. And so after the flood, you might expect God to say, I'm done. You know, I mean, there's this wonderful line in Genesis 6, that God sees that the impulse, the yetzer of the human heart is only evil from youth onwards. That's what causes God to send the flood. Then in chapter 8, 
God smells Noah's sacrifice, sees that the human impulse is only evil from the youth onward and decides to make a covenant. <laughs> it's a new strategy. Okay? <laughs> and as as one of my teachers, David Hartman in Jerusalem, a blessed memory said, now we see what covenant really is. Hmm. Covenant is God's decision to be in relationship with humankind now that God knows it's not all going to be beer and skittles. Probably wasn't David Hartman's metaphor. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, now that God knows there's this huge potential for human initiated disaster, nonetheless, God chooses not the easier option of you know, just getting rid of all of the humans and, you know, maybe trying again with paramecia or whatever. But God decides to stay in relationship and deepen relationship. And ultimately what we see in the course of the Hebrew, of the whole Bible, both mm-hmm. Testaments, is that there are any number of times when you think, okay, the only reasonable thing is for God to say, I'm done. But in fact, God tries again, renews at a deeper level, including to the point of the new covenant of ultimately made through Jesus Christ. Yeah, that is something that strikes me over and over and over when I'm studying the prophets in particular, because when you're just looking at the prophets, there's this excessive amount of communication with God's people. And it, this over and over yearning, please come back. Like I, I just, I want to be close and in community with you, this yearning for them. Yeah. So just now that I'm thinking about the prophets, I have, there's a lot of emotion in the prophets as well, from confusion over what God is doing, anger that the people aren't responding, hope that maybe they will respond or that God will restore them. And the prophets are often speaking, or at least the latter, the literary prophets are speaking kind of with war on the horizon. And sometimes I wonder if we know how to read the prophets well, because we are in a nation of peace right now. And you have a lot of context and contact with people like you work with the Sudanese in Sudan and they have war on their horizon and have very recently, even to modern day. And I just wonder if as you are studying scripture with different communities like that, who are having a different experience of the world if their response to some of these emotions of God or the prophet, if they can be learning tools for you and what you end up gleaning out of that. Yes, absolutely. First of all, I would say, as you know very well, a word that occurs very frequently in the prophets is the word mishpat, which means both justice and judgment. And I would say on the whole, North American Christians are very comfortable with thinking of God as a God of justice, not very comfortable thinking about God as a God of judgment. But in Hebrew, you can't distinguish between those two things, the two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And so when God exercises judgment over the world, ultimately, 
things, you might say, fall into right relation to each other, which is to say justice is restored, but at the cost of judgment for those who have worked in justice. And so I think certainly what I have seen in East Africa, where I've spent most of my time teaching, is that if you've been on the underside of history, you are very eager for God to come in judgment, in righteousness to judge the earth and the peoples with his truth. Because you believe that God will vindicate those who, as I say, are on the underside of history. Mm. And recently, one of my former doctoral students, in fact, last summer, published his dissertation on the book of Nachum, mm. his name is Jacob Onyumbe Wenyi. The title of the book is a line from the book of Nachum, Piles of slain heaps of corpses. And Nachum opens, calling upon God as a God of vengeance. And on the whole, North American biblical scholars just dismiss Nachum as having no place in the Bible. It's sub Christian, <laughs> you know, Christian biblical scholars. It just has nothing to teach us. When was the last time that you heard Nachum read in church? <laughs> but Jacob was a child, he was a seminarian, he's a Roman Catholic priest, he was a young teenage seminarian in the wars in Congo, he's from the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, in the vicious wars of the 90s. And he and his school was taken over, all of the children fled out into the woods And they were there for nine days. Um, They just jumped out of their bedroom windows and fled. I have no idea what they ate or drank for nine days. They assumed they would die. And still the wars go on to this day in Congo. Mm -hmm. So to write this book, Jacob went, he was living in the U.S. at the time, studying here at Duke. He went back to Congo to do what he calls endoethnography, ethnography from the inside, to talk about people who had, especially to talk with people, especially women who had suffered in those even more recent wars. And he said, I'm on the inside because I'm Congolese and because, you know, I've suffered war trauma, but I'm on the outside because now I'm a student at Duke University, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not in the village in the same way. But he wrote a book about the book of Nahum as bringing comfort to victims of trauma because it spoke about their experience and it spoke about God's presence to them even after the unimaginable had happened. And that God would surely bring vindication for God's people. And that was a kind of comfort that simply ignoring the trauma cannot bring. Yeah, so powerful. Wow, that's really beautiful. Actually, unbelievably, this book, Piles of Slain, Heaps of Corpses, was 
a Barnes and Noble pick of the month in August. <laughs> when was the last time a dissertation in Hebrew Bible Old Testament was a pick of the month for Barnes and Noble? So much less a book about Nahum. <laughs> so you can buy it. I love it. <laughs> I would like to know before you go what projects you're currently working on. You mentioned that you're translating the Psalms and you just finished a gorgeous project at Duke that multiple conversation between the arts and the Psalm. Oh, it was so, thank you for sending me that link. It was so beautiful. But yeah, what projects do you have on your plate right now? So I am translating the Psalms for a new hymnal produced by my church, was Duke University Chapel. That's a project of a couple of years, but I'm about halfway through it now, so probably another year to go on that. I'm working with Makoto Fujimura, a painter, on a book on the Psalms and reading them from, in part through an agrarian perspective, a sort of earth-centered perspective. And he's painting. I'm translating and we're writing it in response to the Psalms. And eventually I will probably, we may publish a whole Psalter with my translations and his paintings. So that's, that's probably five years of work. Gorgeous. Well, I would love to purchase that. Yes. <laughs> so I will be watching for Don't it. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> he paints even more slowly than I write. <laughs> I'm a fan of his painting, though. Like his theology of the arts is just so dynamic and beautiful. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of his as well as yours. So uh, the fact that you two are talking together is just really, really amazing. It's, it's a treat for us. Yeah. Thank you, Cindy. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor, really, to have this time with you. So thank you very much. God bless. Bye. Thank you for being with me today at the podcast table. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You are welcome to reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website and let me know what you're thinking about. Next week, we start a four-week series on yet another super challenging topic in the Bible, sexuality. Don't worry, we're not building dogma, but we are going to be brave and step into the conversational waters and see if it is possible to listen with compassion to people who do not share our same views. No matter where you stand on the issue, you are welcome at this table. As the podcast grows, it is the support from my team on Patreon that allows me to put new systems in place to make sure that all of this remains sustainable. So a huge thanks goes out to people like Pastor Jack and David and Julie Logman. I would not be able to produce this podcast without you. The talented Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week, even if maybe with a little bit of fear and trepidation. But until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 